now we come to that time when we have an opportunity to open up his word that we've just sung about. And I would encourage you to do so by taking your Bibles and turning to Second Peter chapter 1. We are returning to our verse-by-verse study of this epistle. And we find ourselves this morning in verses 16 through 21. Follow along as I read 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Before we look closely at this text, I'd like to have you join me in thinking a bit about the concept of truth. Ask yourself, how passionate am I to know the truth? Now, certainly, we demand to know the truth from our doctor when we go in and ask him what's going on with our ailment. We are passionate about the truth when it comes to what our pharmacist puts in those little bottles. We even wish that our politicians would tell us the truth. We tend to be very passionate about the truth when the bank gives us a bank statement and gives us interest occasionally. We want to know the truth from our investment brokers. We would like to know the truth from our police, from our military and so on. And of course, all of this has some relevance to our life because it has to do with where we live. But when you think about it, all of those types of things is really relevant to this life. What about the next life? What about life after death? I find it interesting that for the most part, people aren't that passionate to know the truth about that. What about demanding truth from pastors? From theologians. Seems like we care very little about what God has to say, especially with respect to salvation, with respect to the future. Many people have a very cavalier attitude about truth, and that's why so few people really study it. Ask yourself when was the last time I was so passionate to know the truth? that I spent time in the Bible and studied it and meditated upon it 
and rejoiced in it and applied it to my life. Now, I know for many of you that is a daily occurrence, but for many, even many who call themselves Christians, that doesn't happen very often. Oh, they get a little dose of truth, perhaps on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week, it's really not all that important. Many people have such a cavalier attitude towards truth, they will spiritualize and allegorize over a fourth of the Bible, which is prophetic. Why is that? Well, Peter was passionate about the truth. He was passionate in his dying days, and we know that these were his last days. He was about to be crucified along with his wife, about to be martyred for his faith. But in the last days of his life, he was passionate to proclaim and protect the truth and remind the first century saints and therefore all of us of the truth. That's why in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things. Well, what were the things? Well, verses 1 through 11, the things that he had already written about. How to appropriate the divine power that we've been given to remind us that we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness, salvation, sanctification. He gave a list of the critical virtues that are crucial in pursuing God's glory and having blessing in our life. And therefore, in verses 13 and 14, he says, So I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. Now we come to verses 16 through 21. And Peter continues to remind us of, as he says in verse 12, the truth which is present with you. You see, friends, we must remember that there is such a thing as truth. And there is nothing more frustrating and potentially deadly than falsehood, than being deceived. In Proverbs 12, verse 20, we read that deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. And in verse 22, it says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. And unfortunately, we live in a day and age where we are constantly bombarded by deception. It's hard to ferret out what is fact, what is fiction. You don't know who to believe. We even see this in the religious world. Religious liars, charlatans, Predators in pulpits, hypocrites, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. It doesn't even faze them to tell bold-faced lies. Men and women skilled in deceit, many times claiming that God has spoken directly to them, leading naive and ignorant people into all manner of deception. So that they are, as Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 14, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But my friends, truth has been revealed to us directly from God, and it can be found in Scripture. That's what we see here in verses 20 and 21. It's not merely something that Peter or any of the other writers fabricated in their mind. And we know that it gives us true knowledge, as verse 3 and verse 8 says, true knowledge of God. 
By the way, this was the same truth spoken by Jesus, the son of God, inspired truth, apostolic truth that God revealed to them through the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, beginning in verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, of course, this is totally different than the cleverly devised tales that we read of here in verse 16 that the false teachers were accusing Peter of writing and disseminating. But there are ingenious deceptions that are revealed by men and women. It happened in those days. It happens today. Men and women that are taught and deceived by deceitful spirits resulting in doctrines of demons, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4.1. We have witnessed many lies in our day. In these days of Laodicean apostasy, false teachers of all manner, I have met some of them that claim that they are apostles, new apostles that God speaks directly to. I have spoken with them. I've seen them up close. And of course, nothing has changed. Paul had to deal with this as well in the first century, as did Peter. In fact, we read in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. In other words, men, false teachers that wanted to be apostles, that claimed to be apostles. And he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. Well, this was of immense importance to Peter in, in light of his imminent death, the whole issue of truth. He had been a recipient of the life-transforming power of the gospel. He had been an eyewitness to the glory and the majesty of Christ. The Holy Spirit of God had spoken through him to pen the very words of God. Now, I ask you, who among you would want to face death without certain hope that your faith had been placed in something that is true? Who among us would want to face the future beyond the grave with any lingering doubt as to the object of our faith and our trust. Who would want to face death and in the back of their mind think, you know what, I, I wonder if this whole thing that I've placed my, my, my belief in is nothing more than a cleverly devised tale that some man has concocted, some self-appointed prophet. Well, Satan has given us many cleverly devised tales to choose from in our day. And again, by way of a bit of a long introduction. Let me give you some examples of this before we look at the text. If you like, you could choose Islam. Let me tell you briefly what Islam teaches. Islam claims to be the truth, but it rejects the Trinity. It rejects certainly the deity of Christ. Allah is the only true God. 
And according to Islam, man is unable to have a personal relationship with him. To them, the Bible is a profound distortion of truth and only the Quran, which means the recitation, is true. And that is a collection of revelations given by Allah through his archangel to Muhammad and preserved as the Islamic scripture. For them, this is truth. For them, Jesus Christ was not God, but merely one of many prophets of Allah. Salvation for them is solely by works. And if you're going to escape the future judgment of Allah, you must fulfill the works of the five pillars of the faith, which are, number one, recitation of the Shahad, which is, and you've heard them say this before, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. Secondly, you must have five daily prescribed prayers that you recite in Arabic. And that requires um, uh, genuflection, or in other words, kneeling, as well as prostrating yourself in the direction of the holy city, Mecca. You must also give alms, which is, would be a certain percentage of your income to the poor. And you must fast during the entire month of Ramadan. You must abstain from all food and drink from sunrise to sunset in atonement for your own sins over the previous year. And finally, you must have at least one pilgrimage to Mecca in your lifetime. Now, for billions of people, there's truth. Others would say, no, 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 that's ridiculous. The Buddhist would say, and I'm quoting Ravi Zacharias here regarding what the Buddhists believe. Man suffers, according to the Buddhist, because his desires are fixated on the illusion of self, which confines him to non-permanence with the laws of karma and reincarnation. Self-salvation is achieved by following the middle path, the four noble truths, and the eightfold path. The ultimate goal is to reach the state of nirvana where the self becomes extinguished in the void. End quote. That's comforting. Others would say, no, no, that's not truth. Hinduism, and there's many different sects of this, the whole New Age movement, all kinds of Eastern religions, would basically say the truth has been collected over Many, many years, starting with the oral traditions around the last half of the second millennium B.C. For them, God is defined in many different ways. But basically, they believe in pantheism, that God is in everything, as well as animism, that God or the gods live in non-human objects like animals and trees and rocks and all of those types of things. By the way, this is common in uh, the, the New Age, uh, the whole animal rights movement, um, uh, the environmentalists, uh, you see it uh, in the uh, homeopathic and alternative medicine uh, group, you see it in acupuncture, you see it in all kinds of things. For them, all souls are eternal and accountable for their own actions, and they believe in karma, which is the debt of one's bad actions for which one must atone. They deny the... Trinity, the deity of Christ, the atonement, sin, salvation by grace through the sacrifice of Christ. They believe all of that is phony. And instead, they replace resurrection with reincarnation and they replace both grace and faith with human works. So if you want to be saved from whatever, you've got to earn your way. Well, if you don't like that, how about Roman Catholicism? For them, truth comes primarily from tradition and the Pope, who is considered to be infallible. Some truth comes from the Bible, and much truth comes from the 14 books of the Apocrypha, 
Apocrypha, the meaning of doubtful authenticity and authorship. For them, Mary is worshipped as another God and is elevated above Christ as mediator between God and man. Salvation is not by grace through faith, but by adherence to various sacraments and rituals legislated by the hierarchy of the church. Now, friends, what I've just described are various ideals and systems of religion, all of which believe they are following the truth. And what I've just described covers the vast majority of all the people on the planet today. Well, let's get a little bit closer to home. Others would say that Scientology has the truth, and this is something that is growing. It's very popular in Hollywood, which should immediately cause you to be suspect if you have any discernment at all. For them, the Bible is a product of Hindu scriptures, and truth is derived primarily from a man named L. Ron Hubbard, And when you study his writings, it is really an eclectic hodgepodge of Hinduism, Buddhism, and his own science fiction imagination, for he was a science fiction writer. For Scientologists, Christ is a legend. Man is basically good and will ultimately evolve into what they call homo nobis, which means very high and godlike. And for the Scientologists, they believe that man has a thetan, T-H-E-T-A-N, which is a spirit that is 80 trillion years old and exists somewhere in the recesses of the human skull. They believe in a rebirth or reincarnation, which includes extraterrestrial terrestrial life. For them, when we die, our thetan reports to an implant station, one of which, by the way, is on Mars, according to them, where we receive a, quote, strong forgetter implant, according to Hubbard, and we are then shot down to a body just before it is born, end quote. Thetans occasionally fight over inhabiting a body. They can communicate through telepathy, move objects by kinetics, and travel at high rates of speed. Thetans can be packed in ice and frozen, or they may be dumped into the ocean from a flying saucer. Salvation is merely the freedom from the endless cycles of birth and rebirth. And according to Hubbard, quote, the way you do that is to erase engrams through auditing, which can be accompanied by yawns, tears, sweat, odor, panting, urine, flatulence, vomiting and excreta, end quote. Now, for millions of people, that's truth. Others don't like that at all. They say the Jehovah's Witness has the truth. For them, the Bible is insufficient in learning the things of God and requires, in order for you to know the truth, it requires uh, um, or you need to have additional insight that comes from the Watchtower Society. And you must submit to that group. For them, Jesus was not God. There's no such thing as a triune God. There's no hell. Their definition of an unbeliever, when one dies, not a Jehovah's Witness, they are merely annihilated at death. And salvation, again, is solely by works. By the way, you will see this theme throughout all false religions because there's only two religions in the world. There is the religion of human achievement. And that is the religion of of all or that is the dominant theme and belief of all false religions 
or there is the religion of divine accomplishment, which is true Christianity, where grace only comes through the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the Jehovah's Witness, you've got to earn your salvation. For them, only 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses will go to heaven. They're called the, quote, anointed class. They are the only ones considered to be, quote, born again. And anyone who is beyond that 144,000 group, all of the remaining Jehovah's Witnesses are called God's other sheep and will live forever on paradise earth. Well, others say, no, that's ridiculous. Mormonism has the truth. For them, truth comes from the God of this earth through a living prophet, seer, and revelator to whom the members must demonstrate total obedience. For them, the Bible is a weak source of truth because it's been translated in error and its teachings about salvation are all wrong. For them, there are many gods and God has goddess wives. Jesus and Lucifer were considered brothers and God himself was once a man and but progressed into godhood. And all men can, if you follow the Mormon faith, become God. Elohim is their heavenly father, and he lives with his many wives on a planet near a mysterious star called Kulb. Here, the God of Mormonism and his wives, through endless celestial sex, produce billions of spirit children. And I know some of you have come out of the Jehovah's Witness movement. Some of you have come out of Mormonism, and you know precisely what I'm talking about. For them, Jesus' death only paid for Adam's sin. And the promise of eternal life only means that we will be resurrected to be judged. Truth for them comes primarily through the prophet Joseph Smith, and he is honored as a prophet that is greater than all other prophets, including Christ, Jesus Christ. And once again, we must earn our salvation so that we can progress into Godhead. Salvation is by works, including being a Mormon, having a temple marriage, being involved in the priesthood, genealogy work, serving a mission, and attending LDS meetings. Well, many people in the United States, especially people that call themselves Christians, say all of that is ridiculous. But my friends, I would warn you that there is another great deception that has swept across our world, and it is what I would call apostate evangelicalism. And while it would have many different flavors, for the most part, these will be people that will say that the Bible may or may not be completely true. It's subject to many different interpretations. Much of it is merely allegory. Salvation is certain for everyone because, after all, God is love. Repentance from sin is unnecessary. Obeying Christ is, frankly, optional. Just believe that Jesus loves you in your mind and, and ask Him to save you, not so much from your sin, but save you from a life of misery and poor self-esteem and, and failure and, and not being able to be self-actualized and so on. And also come to Jesus and learn how to unleash miracles, personal miracles, so that you can have a life of purpose and success. Maybe you heard on the news 
the gay Episcopal bishop that spoke at Vanderbilt Divinity School, which I would hasten to add is utterly apostate. And he was saying, for example, that the story of the Exodus is the greatest coming out story in the history of the world, which shows a profound ignorance, if not disdain, for the truth of the Word of God. The story of the Exodus has nothing to do with coming out and homosexuality. And he also added that he believed that all people will go to heaven. Well, there's apostate evangelicalism. And then now something that is perhaps even more frightening to many of us who endeavor to stand for truth and continue to protect it and proclaim it is the whole emergent church movement. And I've talked about this before, but for them, the Bible is hopelessly confusing. Doctrinal dogmatism is both divisive as well as arrogant. And since truth is to them unknowable, if it even exists at all, we must all embrace the mystery of the transcendence and love of God. And ultimately, again, everybody goes to heaven and let's just be tolerant of everybody, regardless of what they believe, because your truth is really no better than your truth or anybody else's truth, whatever that is. Well, dear friends, this was the very opposite of what the Spirit of God tells us in the text that we have before us. And certainly Peter dealt with the same types of people, the same types of satanic deceptions in the first century. The people of the first century, the Christians there, were bombarded with all manner of deception. And he is now telling us that the words of Scripture have come directly from God. And I find myself reminiscing at times about my younger days. And I have to admit that when I was a young man, especially before I even went to seminary and Bible school, I remember I wrestled with this whole issue. How in the world could anybody possibly ferret out what's fact or fiction? If, for example, and I remember having a little paper that I wrote, I wish I could find it. It's probably um, been thrown away and like many of my papers in those days when I got them back, had so much red ink on it, it looked like somebody sacrificed a chicken over it. But I remember writing a paper once and, and it had something to do with this whole issue of, okay, now wait a minute. If a man, an unbeliever, was sitting in a house on an evening and all of a sudden someone came up to the door and knocked on it and said, hi, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. I have the truth for you. And he heard the whole song and dance. And then right behind him was a Buddhist. Right behind him was a Mormon. Right behind him was a Muslim and so on. How on earth could anybody possibly know what is true? Especially in light of the fact that human depravity has rendered our cognitive abilities, our ability to discern truth, has rendered it absolutely inoperative. We know, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, that a natural man does not accept the things of God, of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So I remember wrestling with this. How could anybody possibly know the truth? Because everybody has a good argument, has all of their stories. 
Well, the answer, my friends, is that the Holy Spirit will, in his regenerating power, reveal truth to the elect by the power of his spirit through the instrumentality of his word. In other words, he is the one that reveals truth. It is not man that figures it out. It is God who reveals. And so God must be the initiator of repentant faith. And he gives that gift of faith. In fact, it's interesting. Later on in 1 Corinthians 2, I just read you verse 14 and verse 15. It says, but he who is spiritual appraises, in other words, discerns, judges all things. So it is God who gives the gift of faith, making the work of the Holy Spirit an indispensable antecedent to knowing the truth. If I can put it this way, revelational propositions are self-authenticating because of the Spirit of God. Inherent in the Word of God is its power to self-witness. You see, when a man whom God has chosen for salvation hears the truth of the gospel, regardless of how many false teachers have met with him prior to hearing the truth of the gospel, when he hears that, it will resonate in his heart and he will receive the gift of faith and obey. Psalm 36, 9 says, For with you is the fountain of light. In your light we see light. Psalms 19.7 says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring, literally transforming the soul. That's what the word of God does. The testimony of the Lord, it goes on to say, is sure, making wise the simple. Simple referring in the Hebrew to people that lack a proper understanding of life, of God, and so on. In Psalm 25, verse 14, we read that the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. Friends, you see, even as God sends the rain to accomplish his purpose in meeting our physical needs, so too he sends forth his word to accomplish his spiritual purposes. We read of this, for example, in Isaiah 55, beginning at verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding to the matter for which I sent it. And may I remind you a piece of theology here. When God's word goes forth, it will always do one of two things. A, it will either either soften a heart and cause it to respond in repentant faith, or it will harden that heart and seal it in its unbelief. It will do one of the two. Jesus made this very clear in Matthew 13 in explaining why he used parables. Now, the critic will say, well, that isn't fair. Isn't it interesting? We always like to stand in judgment of God. That isn't fair. How on earth can God delight in obscuring the truth from unbelievers? Well, my friends, you've got it all wrong. You see, unbelievers are spiritually blind because of their unbelief, because of their sin nature. They love the darkness rather than the light. They love it. Not because God has made it unclear or because he is unfair. Moreover, you must understand that God's judicial blinding is an act of mercy. 
And here's why it prevents people, unbelievers who already refuse to believe. It prevents them from being exposed to even more light, to even more truth and thus increase their condemnation in the day of judgment. And so to that end, it is a merciful thing. And we must remember that man bears the image of God. Yet we know, according to Romans one, he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. He knows elements of it, but he doesn't like it. He prefers his sin instead. And this presupposes that he knows the truth about God as creator. Romans one goes on to tell us that he also understands that there is a sovereign ruler and that he is alienated from him. His conscience tells him that he is aware of that alienation. And even if you're here today and you do not know Christ and you think that much of what the Bible teaches is a joke, you know in your heart that that is not so. But you hate it because you prefer your sin. That's what Scripture teaches. And so therefore, because of reason and because of conscience, man is without excuse. Even even unbelievers have the law of God written in their heart. Romans 2 verse 14 says their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. You see, even people that do not know Christ have a sense of right and wrong. And they know that there is a creator and in their conscience, they know that they are responsible to him, yet they hate it. But for those of us who know and love Christ, oh, child of God, never underestimate the power of the truth, the power of the word of God. For we know that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword. Hebrews 412. That text goes on to say it pierces as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And it's for this reason that the Apostle Paul could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So we must likewise never underestimate the truth of God's word. And we can rejoice knowing that if we are number 14 in line behind all of the other false religions and that person in that room and behind that door allows us to present to him the gospel. If that person is one that God has chosen, that person will be saved and we can rejoice in that. Now, the context here, as we get to the text, Peter knew that many were and would continue to attack him and the other writers of Scripture as being charlatans who merely concocted, just made up this elaborate hoax called the gospel. And so Peter now is going to defend uh, the glory and the majesty of Christ as well as the, uh, the source of Scripture coming from God, not from men. And certainly people in that day knew that for the most part, many people call themselves God's spokesmen and they call themselves prophets and preachers and so on. But they were speaking nothing more than cleverly devised fables and lies. And for the most part, they did it so that they could have power and popularity so that they could enjoy sexual pleasure and so on. And Peter is going to go on to describe this in some of the remaining 
uh, chapters in Second Peter. So we come to the text and here he is going to appropriately defend the truth concerning the power and majesty of Christ as well as the veracity of what he has written. And he's going to use two powerful pieces of, of evidence here. Number one, that he was an eyewitness of the majesty of Christ. And number two, that he received special revelation from God. Well, let's follow the Holy Spirit's line of reasoning as he speaks through the, the inspired apostle. First of all, his argument that he was an eyewitness of the majesty of Christ. Notice verse 16. It says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The verb there, we made known, could literally be translated when we imparted divine revelations, what it means in the original language. When we imparted divine revelation to you concerning the power and coming, coming being, being the parousia in Greek, the, in other words, the manifestation, the appearing, the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't just make this up. You see, evidently, the deity of Christ in those days and his power, uh, his glory, his uh, future return were all special targets of the critics. Sound familiar? They were cleverly devised tales which could be translated sophisticated and deceitful myths. Christianity is a lie, they would say, and anyone who believes it is a fool. But Peter refutes that notion by, by reminding them, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, how so? Well, he goes on to describe his experience with James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration and encounter the false teachers that ridiculed him had not experienced in verses 17 and 18. He says, for when he received, referring to Jesus, received honor and glory from God, the father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, majestic glory. There is a grand description, is it not, of God, the father. And here's what God the Father said. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter goes on to say, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is saying, listen, I don't care what the critics say. We lived with Jesus. We witnessed his ministry. We marveled at his miracles. We observed his suffering, his death and his resurrection. We even witnessed Moses and Elijah when they affirmed on the mount that Jesus was the Christ. We have been spectators of the ineffable glory of God shining forth from the Lord Jesus Christ when he peeled back his flesh and he allowed the dazzling resplendent light of his Shekinah to emanate from him and to radiate all around us. All of that was a preview of the glory to come. Don't tell us we've made this stuff up. We saw it with our own eyes. We even heard the very voice of God come down from heaven, affirming his sonship and thereby confirming his deity and allowing us to have a preview of the coming kingdom that Jesus has promised. And unlike the heretics and the self-appointed prophets that accuse us, we have had a glimpse of his future return in power and in great glory. But my friends, there is yet another important piece of evidence that exonerates Peter from the false charge of fabricating some cleverly devised tale. And secondly, 
That is the fact that he received revelation from God to write what was written. Before we look at this closely, it's fascinating to note that while actual eyewitness experiences were indeed powerful evidence in those days as they are today, and certainly it was a powerful piece of evidence to validate the, the, the power and, and the majesty and the glory of, of Christ and thus confirm what he said concerning his second coming and so on, you must understand that God has given us something far greater than experience to affirm the truth. Namely, he has given us his inspired word, the Bible. Now, often people will use personal experience to validate some truth claim to get us to believe something that they believe is true. And sometimes it may be true. And sometimes it may not be true. I think, for example, you, you get this all the time on your Internet and you hear it on, on um, or you see it on television and whatnot. All the health remedies that people claim will do such incredible things. Well, you know, maybe that's true, maybe it isn't. But the problem, of course, that we all have to face in that realm is how can you be sure that your cure was the result of that, this particular herbal remedy or, or, or acupuncture or aromatherapy or, or vitamin C or what is it, St. John's wort for depression or whatever. That doesn't sound too appetizing, but how, how do you know? You know, have you submitted your experience to empirical research. And I know, having been trained in that, all of the methods of that, that there, there needs to be a homogeneous group here where people have the same comorbidities, they have the same health problems, etc. They have the same symptoms, and you've got a large enough sample size that you can have confidence in the results. Have you given a placebo to half the group and the, the cure to the other half of the group, and you find that there is a statistically significant correlation that would there, therefore assure us that indeed this cure does what you say it did in your life? Are there other variables that can contaminate the results? Can this particular test be administered again and again and be reliable enough that it produces the same results and so on? And that's what we do in empirical research. And so the point is, just because somebody has an experience of something may or may not prove the case. And you will see the same thing when you have uh, in, the, in the religious world people that make all manner of claims about the supernatural. They are as numerous as they are bizarre and many times conflicting. You hear people telling about Oh, Satan did this and the Holy Spirit did that and this angel I talked to did this and I was in heaven doing that and God told me this and God told me that. Well, how do you know any of that? Well, fortunately, the Word of God clarifies this and we see this in verse 19. Peter says, and so we have the prophetic word, in other words, the Word of God made more sure. In other words, it's something beyond experience here, beyond just our own eyewitness even, or our own testimony of something. He says, it's something to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Indeed, my friends, the Word of God is a lamp unto 
our feet and a light unto our path. Psalm 119 tells us, verse 105. And we know that the light of the truth penetrates the blackness of this sinful world and illuminates the truth to those who believe and it rescues them from the clutches of Satan and the kingdom of darkness. We know that to be true. And yes, there is coming a day, even as Peter tells us here, when the resplendent glory of the living Christ will dawn, when it will manifest even as the sun comes up over the eastern sky, when Jesus returns to establish His kingdom as He promised. And indeed, He alone is the morning star, the phosphorus in the original language, which literally means the light bringer. He is the morning star. And when He comes again, He's going to transform the heart of every believer, causing everyone who believes in Him to emanate the glory of Christ. I might add as a footnote, the Jews anticipated this. Numbers 24.17, the prophet says, There shall come a star out of Jacob. In Hebrew, a koshav shall come out of Jacob. A shining, a brilliant flashing will come out of Jacob. And they knew that this was a reference to a coming Messiah. But then back to our text, Peter now returns from his little rabbit trail here concerning the glory of future days. By the way, I love those rabbit trails. They're precious. But he returns from this little rabbit trail of glory, of the glory of future days to once again to defend the veracity of his words. And he says in verse 20, he says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, let me stop here. This is often misquoted, misunderstood, misinterpreted. Some people say, well, this means that people cannot interpret Scripture on their own. They need the church to do that. They need the leaders of the church to interpret Scripture for them. Others would say, no, 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 no. It just means that you can't interpret it without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must reveal to you what the Scriptures teach. And then others would say, no one can possibly know what the Bible says. But friends, none of that is true. You see, here Peter speaks of the doctrine of inspiration. The inspiration of Scripture. Let me explain this to you. He says, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of. Now, literally in the original language, it, it means it originates from, is derived from, finds its source in, or comes into being. So, in other words, no prophecy of Scripture originates from one's own interpretation. Now, what does this mean, interpretation? Well, sadly, in the, the, our English definition confuses us here. The word interpretation in, in our understanding of, of English would mean um, our own analysis or, or explanation or understanding of something. But the Greek term, as well as the Greek grammar here, reveals something very, very different. You see, the Greek phrase for one's own interpretation, hideos epileseos, that Greek phrase literally means of one's unloosing or releasing. Now, let me explain this. You see, this denotes source. It denotes origin, not personal explanation. And so, in other words, he's saying Scripture does not originate from one's own releasing, from one's own unloosing, from one who just conjures up something within themselves. You see, the Scriptures, he's saying, did not come about from the prophets themselves. 
as if they have concocted the written word. Man is not the origin or source of Scripture. God is. The next verse gives further insight into Peter's meaning. Verse 21, it says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. All right? It's not something that we come up with. But, he says, Allah, in the original language, which means here just the opposite or quite the contrary, quite the contrary, men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. You see, again, he's saying God is the source of Scripture, not man. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read that all Scripture is inspired by God. Inspired literally means that it's breathed out. It's God-breathed. And for this reason, later on, we can read um, in, in the Apostle Paul's writings, Romans 3.2, Paul describes Scripture as the oracles of God. The oracles of God. So the word of God was written, Peter tells us, by men moved by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they were the ones that spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Moved in the original language means to carry or to be borne along. And we can see this term used in, in other other places, especially in Acts, it's used to describe um, a wind filling the sails of a ship and causing that ship to be moved along or borne along. And because of the grammar of this particular text, it means that it has continually been carried or borne along. So what's Peter saying? Well, Peter, Peter here is speaking metaphorically, saying that the writers of Scripture, now catch this, were merely vessels with raised sails that were filled with the breath of God's revelation to man, causing them to be borne along on the sea of truth by divine inspiration, not by human invention. God is the source of Scripture. God is the source of truth. Oh, child of God, what a marvelous treasure we have in this book. And the power of it to be able to transform a life when there are so many other competing systems. A smorgasbord of deception that Satan offers. A treasure that we all too often take for granted, but not at all what Peter wanted to see happen. And that's why he was reminding them, reminding us of the power of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, the source of Scripture. I want to close this morning by reminding you of what the Word of God can do when we meditate upon it and when we apply it in our life. And what I mean by that is literally taking the Word, reading it, thinking about it, praying about it, meditating upon it, making sure you know what it means. There is a mystical, marvelous thing that occurs. In fact, many things. And I want to give you a list of these that comes out of Psalm 119. I don't expect you to write all of this down. It'll be on the CD. If you want a copy of it, I'd be glad to give it to you. But there are 40 things, at least 40 things. And I mentioned this to you earlier when I read from Psalm 119. There are at least 40 references in Psalm 119 that describes the incredible 
power of the Word of God when we meditate upon it. Because, friends, once again, it is the truth and it is transforming truth. I'm not going to give you the references, but I will give you, give you the things that God's Word will do and I will give them to you in order as they are found in Psalm 119. Number one, it will bring God's blessing. Number two, enable you to imitate God. Produce a clear conscience. Produce thanksgiving to God. Produce an obedient lifestyle. Purify your life. Give you counsel. Enhance your wonder at God's wonders. Strengthen you in time of grief. Remove the false way from you. Produce new understanding. Produce reverence for God. Show you the way of salvation. Give you a right answer. Give you a true freedom. Increase your courage. Comfort you in affliction. Give you a hatred for evil. Give you a song through life. Guard you from panic, allowing you to thank God for trials. Give you good discernment and knowledge. Make you resourceful. Develop patience and endurance. Keep you spiritually recharged or revived. Give you a proper perspective on life. Accelerate your understanding. Give direction to your life. Give joy to your heart. Sustain you when you feel hopeless. Cause you to fear God's judgments. Bring a love of love for God's word. Enable you to honor the right and hate what is wrong. Bring conviction for sin. Surround you with delight in spite of difficulty. Develop the discipline of prayer. Rescue you when you are defenseless. Give you a joy like discovering a great treasure. Fill you with praise outwardly and peace within. Draw you back when you go astray. And finally, affect every area of your life. Dear friends, I would challenge you to examine your heart. Do you have a passion for the truth? And if you do, won't you learn to cherish it, to meditate upon it, and to apply it to your life and live consistently with it and watch what God will do. Watch what God will do. Let's pray together. Father, again, we stand in awe as we reflect upon the source of truth, the glory, the majesty of Christ, Your Word, and so on. Lord, it's just all so overwhelming. And we realize that it's only because of Your grace that we believe in the truth. We cannot be so arrogant as to think that somehow we figured it out. But Lord, we thank You that You reveal truth to us in the gift of faith by the regenerating power of Your Spirit. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Lord, when we were spiritual cadavers, You breathed life into us and caused us to see the truth of our sin and the truth of the Savior. So Lord, we rejoice in that. And finally, Lord, I would just pray again that for those who have never been transformed by the truth, Oh God, won't You in Your great love and Your mercy reach down into their heart and bring conviction that they too might know the truth and might be freed from the bondage of sin. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.